Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and I just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. Well, good morning, guys. Welcome to um, what my friends and I refer to as Youth Pastor Sunday. Uh, for those of you who kind of grew up in the church, you kind of know the unspoken tradition, the week after Christmas, week after Easter, Memorial Day weekend, typically is uh, our weeks where pastors take uh, well-deserved, well-earned days off, and they bravely entrust the pulpit to the youth pastor and just hope and pray that they don't ruin everything, or, or at least hope nobody shows up to see it. Um, my... Uh, my brother-in-law, he's a youth pastor in Arkansas, and he's preaching today, and a good friend of mine, uh, Jeff, is a youth pastor at, at Fort Robinson. He's preaching today, but here at Grace Fellowship, we really like to push the envelope, because I'm not even a youth pastor. <laughs> I'm just me. Um, so today, you are stuck with me and uh, my litter box. So that's exciting. Um, it might be clean, and it might not be. It's part of the fun of Youth Pastor Sunday, you know? Um, but I do, I do really appreciate the opportunity to speak every time that I have a chance to do this. I take it very seriously, and um, it's good for me. It's healthy for me to be able to do this, and so I'm appreciative to, uh, to the staff team, the elder team, for letting me do this. Um, Joel will be back, so come back and see the real thing next week. Um, but uh, the title of my message today that I wanted to speak on is called Rejoice and Rejoice Again until lambs become lions. And, and the kind of the inspiration that I got from this came a couple weeks ago at our Christmas service. Um, for those of you who weren't able to attend that, man, you missed out. Super cool. We met at the farmer's market um, for a nice little Christmas extravaganza. All my favorite things were there. Um, Jesus, my wife, Kyle, coffee, Kyle, Christmas, and Kyle, pretty much in that order. It was all there in one place. It was a beautiful time, a really good time together. Um, but Mark Treese was up with his family, um, and they were lighting our Advent candle of joy. And he said something that really stuck with me. I don't know if you've ever experienced, maybe you're listening to someone speak, and they say just a little sentence or a phrase, maybe something very subtle, and for whatever reason, it just like clicks. And you're like, that, I'll remember that forever. And he, he was um, quoting out of Philippians 4, a verse that we know really well, um, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And he put a little tag on that that just hit me. He said, our calling is to rejoice in the Lord again and again and again, and again. And something about that, it, it really resonated with me. Um, the first time I ever had a chance to speak to you guys years ago, um, I preached a message, still one of my favorite messages on what to do when God gives you a rock, when it feels like God's let you down, when you're going through difficult times and you're not sure where God is and how do we respond in those moments of trial. And um, the, the thing is, I, I think that life rarely happens in like a U shape where we go through one difficult season, one difficult trial, we get out of that and then everything's fine from there on out, right? And life happens more like, it's like a wave pattern, a roller coaster full of many highs and many lows. And, and when Mark was sharing, it just hit me of this idea, like how cool is it to be a person of faith who chooses joy again and again and again, and again. And as life continues to kind of knock us down, we continue to be able to choose joy and, and maintain our faith through all of those times, right? 
something special to that. Um, I just got word uh, about a week ago from a really good friend of mine that, that I grew up with. Um, her and her husband just experienced their third miscarriage. They've been trying for years to get um, to, to have a child. Wonderful people, wonderful couple, super godly individuals, powerful people. And um, they've just been really struggling to have a child. And they just had their third miscarriage. And I was talking to her about it. And, and um, she would tell you if she was here that going through their first miscarriage was very difficult. It's a very difficult season. But there's something a little bit different about getting through that, falling into another exciting pregnancy, feeling all that hope. Um, that comes from that, and then to find yourself right back where you were before, and then for it to happen even again on a third time, right? And so for them, they're fighting through this idea of, hey, we've chosen joy before in the trial, but here we are again, and once again, as Philippians says, our calling is to rejoice again and again and again. And so I think that in order for us to be able to do that, in order for us to be people who choose joy again and again and again, I think we have to have proper perspective on two things. And this is what I wanna really kind of dive into today. I think, first of all, we've gotta have a really good understanding and proper idea of where is God when I'm facing that trial? Where is he? What is he doing? And the other thing that we've gotta have a good idea of is where am I? Where are we? what's going on in our own lives when we're facing some of these difficulties. As if we can have the right perspectives on those things, then we have at least a chance, right, to be able to do something that's very kind of against our nature and choosing to rejoice in the Lord always. So that's what I wanna do today if you guys are with me. Um, Hope that's cool. Um, So in order to do that, let's go ahead and open Bibles and Bible apps. Celebrate with me as we do that. Um, We're gonna open to John 11. Excellent. We're going to be in John 11, and we're going to start in, um, in verse 1. This is the account of Lazarus, um, a passage I'm sure that many of you are very familiar with. And um, man, it's a really cool passage. There's a lot going on here as I was kind of working through this um, and studying it up. I, I just ran into so much good stuff. If you're, um, we got New Year's coming up, resolutions. If you're somebody who's looking at trying to to kind of recommit yourself to daily devos or getting into quiet times and you're looking for a place to dive into, I would definitely um, recommend looking at John 11 and spending some really good time in there. There's a lot of good stuff. Um, But uh, due to time, we're just going to be able to hit a couple of the highlights. Um, So we're going to start in verse 1. And I'm really self-conscious about reading out loud in front of people. So if I mess up, don't laugh at me. I will be very sad. Um, We're going to be in verse 1. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then verse five and six, very, very interesting right here. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so, so he loved them. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Super interesting. If you're an underliner or a circler, circle that little word, so. Jesus loved them. He, they said, hey, Lazarus, the guy who you love, your friend, he's dying, he's ill. And Jesus says, it's okay, I'm gonna take care of it. It's not gonna end in death. And because I love you, I'm gonna stay here. 
It doesn't say, I love you, but I have some stuff going on. I've got to stay here. I'll get up there when I can. It says, because I love you, I love you so, I'm going to stay here for a couple of days. And it really matters in the next couple verses because as he's staying where he is, Lazarus dies. Lazarus passes away and, he, and they bury him in a tomb. And it's not until days later that Jesus finally shows up. Jesus shows up too late. Lazarus is already dead. Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. And you can just, you can just kind of imagine maybe the sisters, what they must be thinking. They're like, hey, Jesus, you, you told us that you were gonna be here and you didn't show up. Um, so if you would just kind of skip all the way down to verse 32, um, Jesus has finally shown up on the scene. Lazarus has, has died. He's been in the tomb for four days. Um, Jesus had a, a conversation with Martha and now Mary comes out and he's talking to Mary. In verse 32, it says, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Has to be kind of a statement that is familiar to just about all of us, right? If you, God, if you would have just done this, then if you would have just shown up, if you would have just fixed this, then fill in the blank, right? So easy for us to, to immediately want to project blame on God for our bad situations. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Verse 34, and he said, where have you laid, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then Jesus, what? Jesus, he wept. Jesus wept. Um, so much good stuff, but I, what I really want to focus in on is just the raw emotion that's going on here. Just put yourself in, in Mary and Martha's shoes for a second. Um, can you imagine you, you've been, your, your brother is ill, he's dying. And in this time, in this age, it must have been a, a super nasty, horrible thing to have to work with. They, they've been really trying to take care of him. They've been putting the warm cloth on his head as he's coughing, gasping for air, right? They're piling the blankets on him as he's shivering. They're watching their brother die. They're trying to take care of him. And they call out to Jesus, who they truly believe is the son of God. They know that he has power over sickness and that he can heal their brother. And more than that, Jesus is like their friend, Right, Lazarus here is, he, at, the, at the beginning of the chapter is referred to as the one that Jesus loves. We know that Jesus has like a very special relationship with this family. Um, so they're reaching out to their, to their friend. They're saying, hey, Lazarus is hurting, come and help us. And Jesus even says, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna help. This is not gonna end in death. But then he doesn't show up. He's late. He let them down. You've got to imagine for them in that moment, like Lazarus has already died. Now, Jesus, you're here. Like we trusted you. We believed in you in, as our God and as our friend. And you failed us in both ways. Um, and if you would have been here, you could have fixed it. Just all of like the sadness and also a little bit of that frustration and anger that has to be going on with them right there, right? And I find it so fascinating the way that God or the way that Jesus responds to that. How does he respond to their sadness? How does he respond to their frustration and their anger? Super interesting. He responds with his own sadness, right? He responds with weeping. He is emotionally troubled as well. Um, I'm about to start a therapy internship with Camelot 
um, next week. So I'll be doing some outpatient therapy stuff. And uh, some, one of the things that I read in my little textbooks all the time, but I've actually learned in my, in my real life and mostly in my marriage, is that we all respond to difficulties in different ways. We mourn and we grieve differently. Um, we need different things in the midst of our grief. Uh, some people, when they're grieving, they need strength. They need to be able to carry on in their routines. They need to be able to go to work and they need to be able to put on strength, even though it may be an illusion, it's very important to them as a way to cope with their grief, to be able to carry on with life. That's something that some people need. Um, other people need optimism. They need to be, these are the people who are really good at finding the positives in bad situations, right? They need to be able to cling on to hope that there's positive here. There's something good here, even though it may seem bad. But other people, and this is gonna sound a little bit maybe redundant, but other people, when they're grieving, they just need to be sad. Some people, in order to cope with grief, they just need to be sad. They need to weep. They need to go through a time of mourning, um, and I think that when Jesus here responds with sadness, when he responds with weeping, he's kind of giving us permission to be sad sometimes. And, and in Jesus's time, this, this wouldn't be that big of a deal. Um, we've, all through scripture, you see accounts where people, something bad happens and what do they do? They put on the sackcloth and they put ashes on their face and they'll take days, weeks, sometimes even months where they just stop life and they're just sad. Now they don't stay there, right? Eventually there comes the time where you take the sackcloth off, you wipe off your face and you go back to work. But they take time to just be sad and to mourn. And the most common phrase that I've used since I've been working in like a therapeutic setting is that I think it's okay to not be okay sometimes. It's not a place that you wanna live. You don't just wanna to stay there in a place of sadness where you just live your life full of depression. I don't think that's the right idea, but sometimes you have to hurt in order to be able to heal, right? Sometimes sadness is a place where you have to go to get to where you wanna be. It's, it's like an airport. You don't wanna live in an airport, but if you've got, a, if you've got an awesome vacation in Jamaica, you wanna to go to the airport to get to your final destination. So I think for some people, we just need to be sad sometimes in order to be able to heal and get to where we need to be. And that's very counterculture, I think, for us because we live in a place and a time where things like inner strength and the ability to overcome and the ability to not be affected by things, I think those are, are very important to us in our society and it's even in our church, right? I remember as a kid going to funerals and I could feel that tension of feeling like I'm not allowed to be sad right now because maybe that'll be perceived as I lack faith in heaven or, or things like that. And it's like that weird tension where we feel like we're not allowed to, to hurt. We're not allowed to be sad. But when Jesus weeps, I feel like what he's doing there is he's giving me permission to hurt as well. I think that's something that is important for you guys to hear. It's an important message for us to hear as a church in our society is that sometimes it's okay to be sad. You don't wanna live there. You don't wanna stay there forever, but it's okay to hurt. But the big thing that I want you guys to take away from this today, the big kind of overarching message that I think is so powerful is that if Jesus was crying and weeping over the situation of Mary and Martha, I think that tells me that he's still doing that for us today, right? The big question that we posed earlier is where is God in the midst of our trial? What is he doing? And, and I've preached messages before on how in the midst of our trial, he's very strong and how he's very in control. 
And I think those are super important, but I wanna add a layer to that. I think he's also weeping with us. It's a very powerful picture of Jesus, right? We, like I said earlier, it's very easy for us when we go through difficult times to, to cast blame on him and to see him as like harsh and mean. But have we ever stopped to think that maybe Jesus is crying too? Maybe, maybe Jesus is weeping with me. Maybe he's angry with me because the reality is hurt, pain, death, dying, sickness, divorce, all of these things that cause issues, that's not a part of his original plan, right? These are remnants of sin. And I think that that hurts him as well. And how powerful of a picture is it to think that when we're having a difficult time, like Jesus is crying with me in that moment. I think that's powerful. And I think that I can rejoice because I know that my God who's strong and in control cares about me too. We can rejoice because he doesn't like it either. And in fact, he, he doesn't like it so much that he promises that one day he's going to fix it. He's gonna make all things new. And that one day when we get out of this place called earth where we don't really belong anyway, one day all this hurt and this pain and the sickness and all of the things that kind of bring us down are gonna be gone. And he's going to fix it all, right? We can rejoice because all of our pain here is simply acts as a reminder that this isn't our home and this isn't the plan and we play for a bigger team and there's more to come. There's better to come, right? Amen. Um, so I think that's a really cool thing. Where is God? He's crying with us. Super powerful. But the second thing that we've got to be able to see is where are we in the midst of all of this? Um, a few months ago, I made the uh, simultaneously the best and worst decision I think of my entire life when I decided that our family needed to adopt a cat. <laughs> <laughs> I decided that we were ready for the next level. We had done the fish and now it was time for us to get the cat. Um, and this is the part of the show where the pastor is supposed to make a lot of really bad cat jokes and talk about how they're all demons and make some people chuckle and other people send really mean emails. I'll be honest with you. I don't think that all cats are demons, but I think mine might be. Um, <laughs> if you guys could go ahead and put up that first picture. Um, this is Pickles. Everybody say, hi, Pickles. <laughs> Pickles is so cute, isn't he? Um, second picture too. I mean, there's little Pickles. Pickles is now a part of our family. Pickles really is a sweet cat. He's a cute cat. He is very playful. He's a people person. He'll follow you around like a dog. He just wants to hang out. He wants to play. He wants to cuddle. He panics when we leave and he gets very excited when we come back. So Pickles has a lot of good things about him, but Pickles also has some serious flaws. Um, Serious, serious flaws. For one, he, he loves to scratch carpets and furniture no matter how much you yell or stomp or clap or name call. He just scratches and he keeps doing it um, and he won't ever stop. The other thing is he farts. <laughs> he does. He, it's like his love language, I guess. Like, like instead of giving kisses or hugs, he'll just walk up on you and just flip around and, and puff one right in your face. And I mean, we're like 12 year old boys smelling. I mean, this is bad stuff. The type that you have to like get up and go to the other side. Um, he has really stinky farts. But, but the worst thing about Pickles, to be honest with you, it, I guess about a, a month or two after we got him, he decided that he was ready to claim kingship over our household and ready to claim head of household. And, and as any king of a house knows, when you're the king of a house, you get to poop wherever you want. 
And Pickles decided that pooping in litter box is for losers. And so Pickles decided he is going to just poop on the floor right beside the litter box, like literally inches from the litter box because he's the king and he gets to do that. And when he does that, guess what I get to do? I get to clean that up. That's not very fun. I don't know if you've ever cleaned up cat poop. If so, not good. Um, so all my cat people, by the way, I know you're all dying to tell me like, oh, I know why he does that. I have all the answers. I have all the remedies. Try this, try that. Save your breath. I don't want to hear it. Don't come up to me after the service and say, here's what you need. Because I promise you, nobody has Googled this more than me. Nobody has researched it more than me. Nobody's tried more random things than me to get him to stop pooping on the floor. And he keeps doing it. In fact, show picture number three. This is a picture of my um, basement. And if you, if you can see, um, there are three litter boxes down there. I, I read a thing that said sometimes cats need more than one litter box, so I didn't buy him two. I bought him three. I've got three different litter boxes, all with different kinds of litter, because maybe he likes some litter better than others. We've got Purina, we've got Off-Brand, we've got all sorts of stuff down there to give him options. How much more could this cat need? And for a little while, this was working. What I found out is what he'll do is he'll do one poop in each litter box. One, two, and three. And as long as you get down there and clean him up before he gets to poop four, you're usually good. But if you don't make it in time, go ahead and show the next one. You can't really see it very well, but you're at church on a Sunday morning looking at a picture of poop that was on my floor last week. That's Youth Pastor Sunday. Um, that's poop over there because I didn't get down there in time. He does this all the time. And it's so annoying. Um, I spend every morning when I get up Every day when I get home from work and every night before I go to bed, I have to go down, clean out the three different litter boxes. And sometimes I have to pick poop off the floor, which then you got to scrub it and you leave stains. And oh, it's so bad. Pickles, man. Anybody want a cat? Anybody? No? Um, but a few weeks ago, I was actually out cleaning up my litter box. And this is going to sound really weird, but I, I, I promise you it's true. I, um, I was cleaning out, this is litter box number one, by the way. I was cleaning out my litter box. Oh, I wonder if there's anything in there. And I was overcome with this weird sense of joy. I know, weird. Um, I had this really weird sense of joy. Um, and the reason why is because I love cleaning litter boxes. No, the reason why is because um, when I was a kid, I had a cat. His name was Tiger. And I loved Tiger. And I would clean his litter box sometimes, and I'd feed him sometimes. But if Tiger pooped on the floor, Dad would go clean it up, right? And when Tiger somehow got himself stuck in our vent, Dad disassembled the whole house to get him out of the vent. And when, and when um, Tiger was really sick and had to go to the doctor, Dad took him to the doctor and fixed him. And I was down cleaning up my litter box. A little shake there. I was cleaning up my litter box one day, and I just had like this sense of joy because I'm cleaning up my litter box from my cat, right, in my house. When I was growing up, when Tiger pooped on the floor, dad is the one who we look to to clean it up. But that's me now, right? I'm dad now. When Pickles poops on the floor, I don't call up dad and say, hey, dad, can you come clean up the poop? No, no, no. I get down and I clean it up. And I, I don't like cleaning up my litter box, but I sure like what it represents. It represents that I'm not a kid anymore, right? It represents that I'm growing, that I'm maturing, that I'm increasing in measure, increasing in, in character, increasing in responsibility. It represents that my family looks to me now to take care of things like this. It represents my growth. 
And I think that our lives are kind of like litter boxes. Poop happens. <laughs> Poop keeps happening. You don't just clean up a litter box one time and never have to worry about it again. You go down again and again and again, for me, three, four, five times a day to clean out my litter box, to get that poop out of there. And it stinks and it smells, and sometimes it leaves stains that are probably gonna last forever. And it's not fun, it's not great, we don't enjoy it, but something's happening here. We're growing, we're increasing in measure. And James 1 says, hey, um, hey people, give thanks when you face trials of various kinds because the testing of your faith is what? It's producing, it's creating endurance. It's making you more of the person that I want you to be. And every time that you scoop that litter box of your life, every time that you go through that difficult time, that nasty, smelly time, and you go down and you choose joy, what is God doing? He's promising that I am making you more like me. I'm reminding you that this is not the way it's supposed to be. I'm reminding you that this is not the way it's always gonna be. I'm reminding you that this is not your home. This is not, this is not right, and I'm gonna fix it one day, but I'm going to use it to make you who I want you to be. So where are we in the middle of our trials and I don't want to oversimplify this because I think there's, there's a lot of things going on in us, but, but super importantly, we've got to understand that in the midst of our trials, we are growing and we're being reminded that this is not our home, right? God is faithful to produce in us endurance, to produce in us character so that we're not just little kids forever and that we get to become mature spiritual adults. Awesome. Um, so the two things that I think that we have to know um, when, uh, when we're facing trials of various kinds in order to be people who are choosing joy again and again and again, we've got to know where God is. Where is God? He's strong, he's in control, but he's also weeping with us, right? We've also got to know where we are. Where are we? We're growing and we're being reminded that this is not our home. Um, in order to do that, it kind of requires us to perceive things a little bit differently. It requires us to see life in a, little, a little bit differently in, in the sense that, that we're not just so focused on the here and now. We're almost like counterintuitively reminding ourselves that there's a bigger thing out there. There's something bigger out there that's at play. Um, and so I wanna kind of finish with that idea um, and the tagline of my, of my message title was to rejoice and rejoice again until lambs become lions. Lambs are very simple creatures. They, um, they just see what's right in front of them. When a lamb or a sheep wakes up, he's, he's got two jobs that day, eat the grass that's in front of me and run from anything that's scary. And that's about all that he does. And sheep are actually very famous for getting so distracted with their little trail of grass that they will wander astray and look up and nobody's there anymore because all they've been focused on this whole time is their little grass, right? They just see what's right in front of them. Sometimes they'll even like fall off of cliffs or fall into pits because they're so, all they're, they're thinking about is I've got to eat the grass that's right here. That's my one job today. That's all that I'm doing. That's all that they're seeing. They're not fully processing the things that are around them. However, lions are very different. 
Um, best book that I've ever read, it's called Through the Eyes of a Lion. It's by a guy named Levi Lusco. Um, he is a, he's a pastor in Montana. He's since become one of my favorite speakers. Um, and he wrote this book called Through the Eyes of a Lion that, that accounts um, he and his wife's kind of battle after they tragically lost their daughter, um, their daughter, Linya. She was five years old. She died tragically and suddenly from an asthma attack a few days before Christmas. Um, no warning, no expectation, um, asthma attack. She passed away and their lives were changed forever. And the book is written as kind of his account of like how he and his wife chose joy in the midst of that trial and how they're continuing to have to choose joy in the midst of living on this earth without their daughter. And, and he talked about like the biology of a lion and the way that they see and talked about how a lion, his pupils will stretch three times um, larger than ours will to let in more light. And he has an extra layer of like reflective nerve cells on the back of his retina so that when light comes in, it gets, it gets pushed back out so they can be processed twice. That's why if you ever see a picture of a lion or even just a cat, they have like the glowing eyes, right? The demon eyes. Uh, it's because that light is like shooting back out of their, out of their retina. Um, they have more um, rods than they do cones. The receptors in their eyes that, that, um, that work on processing light and, and seeing shapes, they have extra rods so that they're able to see without needing as much light. They don't need as much light to processing so they've got extra rods. And they even have like a white strip underneath their eyes, which is the exact opposite of why football players will wear a black strip. Black strips kind of, it gets the light away from you and it decreases the glare. Lions have the white strip to bring in the glare. They're trying to suck in as much light as they can. And that's why if you put me in a dark room, a dimly lit room with a lion, he, I'm in trouble because he's a lion and because he can process and see all the things that are around him and I'm just totally blinded by the darkness. Right, you, if you have cats, you know, like they have like this night vision ability where they can see in the darkness. And I think this is so important because in that scenario where I'm sitting in a dark room with a lion, our surroundings are the exact same. We're not, we don't have different surroundings. It's just that the lion is processing the surroundings so much better than I am. He's sucking in all of the light, even in the midst of the darkness, and he's able to see what's going on in a way that I can't. What am I saying? I'm saying that our spiritual eyes, if we can train our spiritual eyes to see what's happening around us differently, to understand that in the midst of that trial where God is and where we are, and to understand that, hey, you know what? Our trials, they're always gonna be temporary, but what they're producing is gonna last forever. And if we can see that, you know what? God is not happy about this either. He's sad and angry too. So instead of running from God in our sadness and anger, we lean into his sadness and anger and the belief that he's gonna fix it, that he's gonna make all things new, right? What am I saying? I'm saying that in order to be people who choose joy again and again and again and again, we have to be people who think and see the world differently, not just differently, but correctly. We have to understand how the proper perspective of what we're experiencing 
where God is in the midst of it, what's happening inside of us. Because if we're able to get there, if we're able to fix our mind and suck in the light and the hope and the truth of God, then, and only then, can we rejoice again and again and again and again. Whether it's the first miscarriage or the third, right? no matter what it is that we face, God hasn't changed and our, our surroundings are the same. We've just got to see what he's doing. We choose joy because, not because we like it. Hurting with hope still hurts, not because it's fun, not because I love the situation that I'm in, but because I believe in the power and the goodness of a God who's crying with me. Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you were challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.